So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. One day, a farmer is walking home after a long, hard day at work. And as he's walking along, he sees in the grass an egg. And he bends down and he picks up that egg and he feels that it's still warm. And so as he's walking back home, he goes past the chook pen, he opens it up, there's a hen there roosting, he picks the hen up, he places the egg under there and he heads back to the farmhouse. Eventually, the egg cracks and out of that egg pops a baby eagle an eaglet. Now that eaglet lives in the farmyard with all the other animals, with the other chicks and mama hen. And it learns to peck like chicks do, it learns to cluck like chicks do, it learns to scratch in the ground like chicks do. One day there when it's out in the farmyard with all its friends, it looks up in the sky and it sees this majestic bird soaring through the air. It looks up and it goes, wow, look at that. And it gets so excited. It says, Mama Hen, Mama Hen, look, look up there, look up there. Mama Hen, who's been pecking with all the others, looks up and goes, oh, yeah, looks back down. But our eaglet goes, but Mama Hen, Mama Hen, what is it? It's beautiful. Mama Hen says, oh, don't worry about it. Go back to your job. But our eaglet is, if nothing else, persistent, says, but Mama Hen, I want to know what it is. Mama Hen looks up and says, baby, that's an eagle. And the eaglet goes, I want to be an eagle one day. I want to be like that. I want to fly and be free. And Mama Hen says, you're not going to be an eagle, Dale. You're just a chicken. Just keep pecking away at the ground. With that, Mama Hen goes back to pecking at the ground. The eaglet looks up and it sees this bird soaring in the air and he thinks, wow, 
What would it be like to be like that? How wonderful would it? And then he looks around at all of his friends all pecking in the ground and Mama Hen pecking in the ground. He looks back up and he wonders what it would be like. He looks back down and he starts pecking at the ground. Our little baby eaglet unfortunately lived and died as a chicken because that's what he thought he was, because that's what other people had told him he was. Identity. Who are you? One of the most profound questions that any of us have to answer across our lives. And I can tell you as a psychologist that the answer to that question is pivotal in your journey as a human being on this earth. Because it, it's, it's from that identity that your behaviour will be shaped, that your dreams, your aspirations, your goals, those things you count dear will ultimately flow from. And given that, it's such a pivotal question. I think it's wonderful this morning that we have a good God who loves us dearly and he will not not speak into that space. And so today, God will, if we have ears to hear it and hearts that long to hear it, he will speak into that space and he will tell us of an identity that's far beyond our imagining, so much better than any of us could have ever imagined and dreamt. So given that that's where we're going, how about we pray to our God and then we'll jump into the Bible. Father God, um, we all pray that you will still our minds this morning. You will open our hearts and you'll help us to be receptive to what you have to tell us today. Father, for me, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray to you. Amen. Amen. So we are continuing in the book of 1 Peter this morning. Uh, just to remind you of the context of the book of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to a number of churches who are, let's say, struggling. Let's say they're oppressed. Let's say they're experiencing open hostility. But he's already reminded them that they have a number of identities, that they are a chosen people. He's reminded them they're exiles, that they're holy people, that they're cleansed people, that they are a ransom people, and they're a people born again. One of the things that Peter's wanted to tell them from the start is that they have a living hope in Christ. He didn't start by saying to them, look, you need to behave this way, you need to do this, you need to do that. He said, remember you have a living hope in Christ. You have a risen saviour not a dead God. And because you have a risen saviour, then you have an inheritance that cannot be touched. Thomas spoke about it this morning. It will never be tarnished, never be taken away. So remember your living hope. That was his starting point. He said you're a new people. You have a new family. You have this hope that's untouchable. So no matter what's happening in your world, 
no matter what's happening in your community and no matter what's happening in your family, rest in that knowledge that you have that hope. And I think one of the things that Peter's wanting to do is to make a very strong point that who we are is about what Christ has done on our behalf. Because whilst he's writing to those churches, he's writing to you and me today. And he's writing to you out there. And so what I'm wanting to do, because I think that's what it is, is who we are is about what Christ has done on our behalf. That's where our identity comes from. And so today, as we pull apart this passage, I'm hoping to do three relatively simple things. One is I want to talk about what is man's building project when we look at these verses. Secondly, what is God's building project and what's our identity from that? And then lastly, how does this new identity that we are given shape our behaviour as we live in this world? So if you have your Bibles open or your phones open, let's dive in and have a look from verse 4. So verse 4 and 5, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So notice here that Peter's talking about Two distinct building projects. That's the metaphor he's going to use this morning. So we have man's building project and then we have God's building project. What's the verb that, they choose, that, that Peter chooses to use for man's building project? It's reject. But what's the verb used for God's building project? To choose. So already we see man and God at opposition to one another. Reject or choose. And from these verses, what are they rejecting or choosing? Well, they are choosing the stone. Now, the stone is Jesus. And what is the stone? The stone is precious to God. And what's the building project that God's on about? Well, it's building a spiritual house. God is on about building a spiritual house. His church his people. And that was what Jesus said when he wandered the earth. He said, I will build my church. And that's what he went about doing in his ministry. And that's what continues even to today. But let's take a moment to have a look more closely at man's building project. Now let's remember in that day, uh, the Jews had rejected Jesus. They looked at him and they said, this fellow our Redeemer, this fellow, our so-called Saviour? No way. Even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it was Nathaniel when his brother said, I found the Lord. What did he say? What did he say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And yet that came from the lips of someone who became a follower, a believer. Yet that typified Jesus' ministry and his life here on earth. He was unexpected. The Jews looked and they went, yeah, yeah, we know all that suffering servant stuff, but that bloke, he eats with sinners. He hangs out with prostitutes. He doesn't even wash his hands before he eats. 
We're not going to accept him as our saviour. And so they rejected him. Because then he hung on a cross and they said, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. And he died. God's dead. God can't die. He can't be God. And so they choose to reject him. And then in verse 6 and 7, Peter notes more about man's building project. In verse 6, he mentions God laying a cornerstone. He's going to be great for those who believe, but, in verse 7, he says, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and it's a stone of stumbling and it's a rock of offence and they stumble because they disobey the word of God. So that the stone the builders rejected, that's the world saying, he's not the one. Why would we follow him? Why would we give up our lives to follow that fella? No. And have you ever, I don't know about you, I I was a builder's labourer for a little while. I wasn't really good at it, as you can see from my physique. But um, even I know. So what have they done? They've, They've rejected the stone, but they've left it sitting in the building site. They keep tripping over it. If you're on a building site, you don't leave stuff lying around, you move it. But they kept tripping over Jesus because it's inevitable that he keeps being part of this world because he's the king of this world. And so they stumble and they fall. And why do they stumble? Why do they stumble? Well, Peter tells us. They stumble because they refuse to submit to the word. Had they believed the word in their heart, even the Old Testament, They would have had eyes to see who Jesus was, but they refuse to. They reject, they refuse. That's the world saying, I'm not accepting this gospel of grace, this good news. As Christians, we should see the Bible and God's word as the most beautiful thing ever. We should treasure it dearly, but our world doesn't. They say, oh, yeah, we've got a family Bible. It's sitting on the shelf somewhere. I think it's got some dust. Or our friends and our family who don't believe, who go, oh, that's nice for you. You believe. I'm glad you found something nice to believe in, but I'm okay, thanks. That's people refusing to submit to the word. That's people rejecting him and building their own identity and their own strengths and their own capabilities. I want to share a story of a fellow by the name of Alfred Nobel as an example of someone who ascribed to man's building project. He was a Swedish chemist uh, and he was a very smart fella. He owned over 300 patents and he's very well known for inventing dynamite. He also invented gelignite and he also invented torpedoes. He enjoyed blowing things up, seemingly. One morning... And he was a very rich man. He, he, he had a, a fortune of over $400 million. One morning he opened up the newspaper and he went to the obituary section and he read an obituary that was written for him. And it went along these lines. Alfred Novell, the inventor of dynamite who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to die, for, for more people to be killed in a war than ever before. And he died a very rich man. 
That was his obituary. They'd made a mistake in the newspaper. His brother had died a week before and they were meant to write the obituary about him, but they wrote it about Alfred Nobel. Now, the newspaper was embarrassed, but Alfred, this had a tremendous impact on his life. He realised this was his identity and how he was going to be remembered. And so as a result, he applied his hundreds of millions of dollars to changing his identity. And he set up the Nobel Institute. And that's where the Nobel Peace Prize comes from, because he wanted to try and reward individuals who fostered peace. Alfred has this lovely quote. It's very quotable. Every person ought to have the chance to correct their epitaph in midstream and write a new one. That's a lovely quote, I think, but how does it really play out in life? Well, here's the summary that I pulled from Wikipedia the other day on Alfred's life. Alfred was an agnostic in his youth and was an atheist later in life. He left most of his wealth in trust, unbeknown to his family, in order to fund the Nobel Prize Awards. Criticism of Alfred Nobel focuses on his leading role in weapons manufacturing and sales, and some question his motives in creating his prizes, suggesting they are intended to improve his reputation alone. Alfred tried to write his own epitaph and his own identity. But to what end? I'll let you decide. So let's move on now to God's building project. I'd say God's good building project. If we look back on verses 4 and 5, starts with, as you come to him. As you come to him. As you come to the person of Jesus. See, Peter's saying that God's building work is about coming into relationship with the person who is Jesus Christ, with a man and a real relationship and coming to know him. That's the starting point. That relationship is with a living person. It's with a risen saviour. Peter then talks about that he is risen, he is alive, and so therefore he is a, a living stone. He's a resurrected God. And as you come to this living stone, guess what? You too become a living stone. So you've got the living stone there and it's almost like you join in and you become living. And Peter's already told us back in chapter 1 that they are born again, that they are given a new life. And so it's by coming to that living stone that you yourself get this new life. And we've been given it because of God's great mercy. And then he tells them, you too are precious. The world may not see you that way, but God sees you that way. Because Jesus was precious. And because he gets it, you get it. And then he tells them they're a royal priesthood. And what's their job as priests? Well, it's to bring spiritual sacrifices. So the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, they're gone. Because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. He's paid the penalty. And now we get the honour of being able to bring spiritual sacrifices. Now, in my reading of the New Testament, I think what Peter's talking about here, the spiritual sacrifices, is our bodies, is our good works, is our time, is our praise. Even the people 
We win to Christ through sharing our testimony. But notice the point Peter makes there, that these sacrifices are only acceptable to God when they are offered through Jesus Christ. So if I do any of this to feed my own agenda, to feed my own ego, then those spiritual sacrifices aren't spiritual sacrifices at all and they're not acceptable. In the AA Fellowship, we believe the word ego stands for edging God out. And Peter's saying here, if you edge God out, then you've already gotten your glory. So Peter now extends the idea of a living stone into a cornerstone. So let's pick up in verse 6. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, precious. So what's a cornerstone? I'm not a builder. I was a builder's labourer, not for very long because I wasn't really good at it. But Scotty here would tell you that a cornerstone is like a plumb line. Yeah, It's this firm foundation that's square, that if you lay it well, then everything you lay around it, the building will be strong. The building will be firm. And so what Peter's saying is, he is your cornerstone. You build everything around that. You will have a firm foundation. Now let's think of Peter's audience for a minute. There are people who are in the minority. There are people who are scattered. There are people who are suffering. They're maligned. They're laughed at. They're ridiculed. They're abused, they're hated, they're demeaned, they're discredited, they're shamed. And as they see that, they don't have Facebook and all the connections. We have this starting to go, well, no one loves this Jesus like we love this Jesus. No one loves God like we love God. Maybe we've got it wrong because we're being rejected. And Peter says, no. Remember, Jesus was rejected. And in fact, if you are rejected then that's proof that you've been elected. If you're not being rejected, maybe you need to think. So what he's saying to them is it's not about your shame. In fact, that's an honour to be rejected because Jesus was rejected and Jesus was precious to God. So you are precious to God. You are part of this spiritual building project. And now Peter builds on that identity of the living stone as we look in verse 9 onwards. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's us. That's us. When things aren't going our way, when the world wants to laugh at us, because we claim the name of Christ. And we seem to have these weird ideas 
We need to remember we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. And we belong to God. We are precious in his sight. That's our core identity as Christians. In these verses, uh, Peter is drawing on Exodus 19, and I want to just briefly read that. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, if you read the whole of the Old Testament, this is what Israel was meant to be. But they couldn't inherit their destiny. They couldn't inherit it. But now, now this is our calling. As we come to Jesus, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation and we're a people of his own possession. But notice, this is all about what God has done. That's what he said to the Israelites. I brought you out of slavery. I opened the Red Sea. I fed you. I watered you. I'm giving you a land. And he's saying the same thing to us. It's all about his grace, but we get to inherit it because of Jesus. And what's our goal? is so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who caught us out of darkness into the marvellous light. But notice this is the job for each one of us. We are a royal priesthood together. We have a job out in our world because Dave isn't at your workplace. Thomas isn't at your family barbecue. Tim isn't at your sporting group, but you are. So we are all part of that royal priesthood as we proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness. And if we're ever in doubt as to why we have this privilege of such an identity, then verse 10 reminds us it is all about God's mercy. One such fella who came to know that he was made for another world was William Thomas. And I want to tell you about him very quickly. His nickname was Staffordshire Bill. Staffordshire Bill grew up in 1930s in Wales. He was a fishmonger and he was a drunkard and he was a violent man. He was not a nice guy to be around. Uh, stories go that he would, most nights, get back on his horse drunk and he would fall back in the back of the wagon and sleep with the old smelly fish that were there. No wonder he was left alone. But he was more left alone because he was a violent, horrible man. Um, Staffordshire Bill says one night when he was about 70 years of age, he was in a pub drinking by himself, of course, because no one wanted to be near Staffordshire Bill. And he uh, heard some fellows talking and saying, we've got that new pastor's coming to town. And he said that none of us are beyond hope, none of us are beyond saving, that we can all be saved. Bill said that night he went from 100% drunk to 100% sober because he said, I felt this alien feeling up inside of me, a small word called hope. And he determined that he would go along and he would hear that pastor speak. And so he tried on two occasions, but he gutted out and he went back to the pub and got drunk. And on the third occasion as he turned up there, Staffordshire Bill was about to slink away again when one of the kind parishioners said, hey, Bill, is that you? 
Why don't you come in? And so Bill did go in. And that night, he heard from 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here forever. That anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. That same night, Staffordshire Bill said he moved from what he identified as a hopeless wretch to a loved child of God. He moved from feeling condemned and judged to someone who had a new life. Apparently, as he walked out that night, one of the parishioners grabbed him and said, I'll introduce you to the new pastor. Pastor, this is Staffordshire Bill. And Bill slinked back as if someone slapped him in the face. And he said, no, no. He said, that's a bad name for a bad old man. My name is William Taylor. I am a loved child of God. I wish I could say to you that in the next three years, Bill started up a wonderful institute, but he didn't. He died three years later, and these were the only words I could find about him, were that he died at peace and he was remembered as a gentle man, a kind and gentle man. William Thomas got a new identity, one that he never deserved, but one that he inherited. So on to our final point. What are we going to do with this new identity? How does it shape and affect our behaviour as we live in this world? Verses 11 and 12, pick this up, and then from there on in. But we'll do 11 and 12 today. So dear friends, I urge you as foreigners exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter reminds them very clearly, straight up front, what are you? You're foreigners and you're exiles. Don't get too comfy. This is a beautiful world living here on the central coast. Great day at the beach, lovely cup of coffee, nice game of football, good conversations with people you love. They are things that are to be enjoyed, but don't get too comfy, is what Peter's saying. Because if you get too comfy and you start to say, well, maybe I need to talk like they talk. Maybe I need to watch what they watch. Maybe I need to... Did God really mean this? Before too long, you start to water down your identity and you become a resident. You are no longer an exile and you lose your identity. And he's saying, don't do that. We need to see things differently, brothers and sisters. We need to see how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we see sexuality, how we see gender roles. We are different and we must be different. And he's saying don't lose that difference because that's the danger, is that you assimilate. Now Peter now tells them how should they live? Well, he starts by telling them, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Jesus said, it's not the outside that needs fixing, it's the inside. And that is exactly what Peter's picking up. And if nothing else, across the last 25 years as a psychologist working with people who are trying to change unwanted behaviours, I can tell you, it's in here that the decision gets made 
to behave a certain way, to do certain things, because it's the lies in my heart and in my mind that start me down that bad road, where I think, will it really matter if I do this or that? Or, you know, did God really want me? Surely that's something that was just cultural and why can be like this? That's my heart and my mind starting to lie to me. And if I head down that path, it won't be too long before my hands follow. So how are they to do it? They are to focus on their identity. Everything that Peter's told them, that's their launching pad with Jesus as their cornerstone and that's our launching pad. As our heart and our mind goes after the kingdom, as we firmly fix our feet in the gospel and these promises and this identity, we will be important for the world because we'll be different. Because do you know what? The things other people chase after and get joy about and that's how they fill their life. We don't need that because our life is already full. And so when the inevitable challenges of this world happen, when your family gets sick, when, when you don't get the job you want, when you don't earn the money that you want, that others are getting and they're chasing after these things, you don't need to chase after them because you've already got your inheritance that no one can ever take away. That's what Peter's saying to them. Remember those identities and then you will live differently. And let's look at it, the pages of this Bible. What did these people do? This small band of churches, they basically changed the world. They changed the Roman Empire and then beyond. And how? By living countercultural lives, right in the midst of other people. They didn't start a gated community and say, well, let's lock ourselves away from everybody. They lived in the midst of it all. And Christians have done that for centuries since. Whenever war broke out, whenever famine broke out, whenever pestilence broke who was there? It was the Christians who helped, who stood alongside of people. And they helped non-Christians. And people said, you Christians even help other people. Why do you do that? Non-believers. And we went, well, that's what our Saviour did, so that's what we've got to do. And that goes right through to today. In 2006, uh, I saw a statistic that 60% of NGOs affiliated with the United Nations are Christian. And then there's something about the, the way those Christian organisations operate. And I've got a quote up here from Elizabeth Ferris from Red Cross, where she said, Christian NGOs are active, active in virtually every country in the world while Jew, Jewish and Islamic NGOs primarily serve members of their own religious communities, Christian organisations tend to have a, mess, a more global outreach to assist those in need, regardless of their religious affiliations. We are called to live distinct lives right in the middle of things. God called us to be a people, his people, and we are to be a light to the nations. Other people should notice and go, Oh, that's what your God's like. Wow. That's how your God loved you. Wow. That should be a light to the nations. C.S. Lewis said it more eloquently than I think I ever will. And that's probably a little bit small, that font. I apologise. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. 
the apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, then they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Remember where our inheritance is. So today I think, I believe we have a couple of questions to answer. Whose building project will you be part of? Will you be like the eagle, so shaped by others and their views and their voices and their opinions of you that you'll be absolutely immobilised in this world, unable to embrace the identity that Christ is calling you to? Or will you be like Alfred Nobel, which was me at one stage in my life, so proud and arrogant and so sure of your own strength and your own capabilities that you're going to build it yourself no matter what? Or will you be like William Thomas? Will you know and feel that you don't belong here? And will you be keen and eager to accept the identity that Christ has waiting for you? If you have not made that decision to be like William Thomas, then I implore you, if you've come along here today, have a yarn to the person you came with. I'm here afterwards, Dave's around, I see Darren here. If you're online and you haven't made that decision, again, can I implore you, send us an email, connect with someone so that you can think this through. And saying connect, we have a connect course coming up soon. That is exactly what you do in that course. You would delve into your identity more and understand what God is calling you to because of Jesus. And if you have accepted this identity, then remind yourself constantly of your identity. Remind each other of our identities, even when we don't feel like it. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are God's chosen people. And it is wonderful when we do that to be free of the world's expectations, but we must stay engaged. We should not pull away because, let's face it, that is the mission that Jesus was on. He was in exile. His home was in heaven. He wasn't welcome here. He came to die for his enemies. He laid down his life as a servant to love, to serve, to bless. Even when other people said, oh, no, thanks, that's nice, you've got something to do, but I'm okay. He forged ahead, he kept going. We are now rooted in him. He is our cornerstone. He is our high priest. We are to be his priesthood. So we are called to live in the same way that he did. I pray that for each one of us, we can constantly remind ourselves of that identity and we can feel that call to be part of his royal priesthood. But brothers and sisters, we should never forget that it is because of God's great mercy we are given this position. It's all about his grace. It's all about his doing. How great is it to be part of his building project?
Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you that we do have a living hope, an inheritance that will never tarnish, an inheritance that will never fade. Father, we feel humbled to not only be called to be part of your building work as you grow your church, but to, to have an identity as your holy people, your royal priesthood. And the cause of Jesus, Father, we are precious to you. Heavenly Father, help us to firmly act out of our identity as we live countercultural lives in our world. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.